Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones is underway, and you can stay up to date with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre-cappable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, our YouTube channel has tons of other Game of Thrones related content, which you can find at youtube.com slash the ringer. And for even more Thrones coverage, head over to the ringer.com. Chen Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. In celebration of our very first anniversary, we will be releasing two pods every week in the month of May. Big shout out to the Podfather himself, Bill Simmons, and the Ringer team for all of their assistance. To the crew of Major Domo Media, couldn't do this without you. And most importantly, to all the listeners, thank you for your continued support. It's been very fun as we figure this whole thing out. Now on to the show. This week's episode, I speak to two people who I've worked with for a very long time, Kylie Javier Ashton and Paul Carmichael, respectively our general manager and the executive chef of Seobo, our restaurant we opened up in uh, 2010, 2011, eight plus years ago in Sydney, Australia, in the Star Casino located in Piermont, which is a sleepy back bay of Sydney. And not just the casino, we opened up in the mall attached to the casino, which, you know, it's quite the location to have your first restaurant outside of New York. And um, it gives you a sort of insight in the state of mind I was in when I decided, yeah, fuck it, let's just open a restaurant in Australia. Why not? And we really poured ourselves into it. But Paul and Kylie. Kylie's been with us pretty much since the beginning, becoming general manager. And Paul had been with Momofuku for several years. And he is a good friend that I have known in the New York City sort of culinary scene for since pretty much the year 2000, which is insane when I think about it. We've done a few episodes in the past with the team at Major Domo talking about the post-opening diaries Momofuku Vegas, about the changes in Las Vegas, and essentially the trials and tribulations of opening restaurants. Even recently, we did Unjo Park at Kawi at Hudson Yards about opening a restaurant. This one's different because this is about not just Kylie and Paul working halfway around the world. It's different because of all the restaurants we've had and open. Seobo is without a doubt the most independent. I give these guys and we give them all the opportunities to make every decision on their own. It's wonderful to see them take this opportunity and own it and do it in a way, quite frankly, that's way better than anyone else could have done from Momofuku headquarters. I'm down there as often as I can be, but not as often as I'd like. In order for it to work, these guys have to feel completely free to run it as they see fit. And they've been doing it so well. And, uh, you know, we've had an epic run, I feel, at Seobo. It's hard for people in America or the Northern Hemisphere to visit because Australia is so far away. But when we opened up in 2011, it was sort of a Australian version of Co made with exclusively Australian ingredients. It was a beautiful kitchen. I got to design one of the nicest kitchens and quite frankly, one of the most expensive kitchens I've ever had the opportunity because the casino wanted it to be such. And it's it's about 40 seats. It's, it's not a very large restaurant in an indescript part of that shopping mall. We wound up getting three hats in the very first year of its existence by the Good Food Guide, which had never given three hats to a first-year restaurant in the 47 years of the Good Food Guide. And uh, the Good Food Guide, for lack of a better understanding, is essentially like the— uh, the Michelin Guide, I would say, they judge everything by hats. One hat is great, two hats better, three hats is a special destination, best-in-class kind of restaurant. And we also won Gourmet Traveler Restaurant of the Year soon after. And then, like many restaurants, 
you go through this sort of ebb and flow and this trajectory where we reached a very high and then ultimately we went to a low place because we could not keep up with the trajectory. And I realized that it was because we were trying to cook for everyone else but ourselves. And things were not right, but we tried so hard and we had the really, we just had a really great team. And that team was really good because you had someone like Kylie Javier Ashton running the house as the general manager. And she just poured herself into it. And when Ben Greeno left to start his own restaurant with the Marivelle Group, we knew and I knew that I wanted to put Paul down there to team up. I just thought that he was underappreciated in New York, even though I thought he was one of the best chefs in America. And to team him up with Kylie was going to be a partnership that I hope was going to work out. I did not anticipate it to work out as well as it had because they wound up getting three hats. We were demoted pretty much right when Paul started his tenure at Seobo. And they've gotten three hats and they won all the awards all over again. And the irony is they are cooking and running that restaurant with zero fucks about awards. They simply are doing what they want to do. They hold each other accountable. They are their harshest critics. And they are cooking the food of the Caribbean, of Paul Carmichael's passion, which is food of the islands. And it may not make sense to see one of the best Caribbean restaurants in the Southern Hemisphere, but it does when you consider Paul's journey to getting to Australia and the ingredients that he's surrounded with. And in so many ways, I still think that Siobo is the most momofuku kind of restaurant. And what they were able to do and how they were able to operate really did sort of, it was the catalyst for change within momofuku. It showed me that you could run a restaurant with joy and still be ambitious and holding each other to the highest standards, yet wanting the customer to be happy. I could talk on and on and on about Paul and Kylie and what they've done at Seobo. I'll let you hear from them. I'll shut the fuck up. Here's my conversation with Kylie, Javier Ashton, and Paul Carmichael. I am with Kylie Javier Ashton and Paul Carmichael, the brain trust duo of Momofuku Siobo in Sydney, Australia. Kylie's been with us pretty much from the beginning. Paul's been, we've been working together and known each other for damn almost 20 years. Yep. <laughs> and uh, our restaurant down here has had a, a funny history, right? We opened up almost seven years ago and we exceeded anyone, including our own expectations. And then something I'm sure we'll talk about down the road about living up to those expectations and how awards and the stress of maintaining success can be so not just off-putting, but just shitty. And we needed to make a change. And thankfully, Kylie was the voice of reason and the, the heart of the restaurant. And we were lucky enough that Paul decided to move to Sydney, Australia with all the other things going on in his life. And I can't thank him enough for making that. And you Debt guys got along. Paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I will stop talking now, but I just wanted to set it up because I believe the two of you guys are, without a doubt, some of the best in the business. Talk about what food you are making now at Sayobo. Because you found your voice, I think. It's been two and a half years to get there. What is it now? It is Caribbean food. True and true, I believe. It's kind of like Kylie and I always talk about. It's it's that and not being apologetic about it. Because I think before, when I started cooking here, I was not necessarily confused, but more trying to fit into what I thought Momofuku was. But it was extremely freeing when you, Dave, you just said, do whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. That had to be repeated several times because I don't think you believe me. Yeah, but you remember we were in New York. I had just gotten here and I came back to like do some visa stuff. And we were we went to that Japanese restaurant on like 17th Street or something. And we're sitting down eating katsu. And you're like, do whatever you want. I don't care. And I was like, are you sure? 
I told you to. Yeah, but I was like, do you know what that means? Because, you know, some people are like, yeah, do whatever, but there's conditions. There's conditions and strings. And I was like, are you sure you know what that really means? And you're like, yeah, whatever. Just, I don't care. And I was like, all right, man. And I left you and went back to Sydney. And we, we opened with a, a pretty basic menu, but it was a menu mirroring what Sayable and Cole was with like kind of like my style. I quickly got very annoyed at myself by doing that. And I started the bar menu. And I was like, Kylie, we're going to change the bar menu. I want to cook in this specific way. And this is going to be my outlet. Sayobo is going to be Sayobo because like that's what it is. And then the bar menu started like take off, take a life of its own. And Kylie, I was like, man, I just want to cook like that. And Kylie then literally was like, it was like the voice of reason or just hearing somebody smart saying, then just do it. Just cook like that. And when she said that, I was like, wait a minute. Why can't I just do that? Yeah, I remember that conversation because I was like, you know, the bar food started and then like a lot of our friends started coming in and they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And like I could just see like the change in Paul when you were cooking that food too. And I was like, why is it so different? And you're like, well, because that's how I like to cook. And I'm like, so then why don't you just cook like that? And you're like, oh, I don't know. It's because, you know, that's Sayobo and this is the bar. And I'm like, you're overthinking it. Just do what you want. Just cook how you want to cook. And that was like from that moment on, I think like we just went for it. Yeah, because then I just let go of all the things I had in my head about what a construct of a restaurant was supposed to be or what a construct of fine dining was supposed to be or what people's expectations of a hatted restaurant was supposed to be. Like, I just let it all go. And the hatted was the good food guide, which is one, two, or three. When we opened up, we got three hats right off the bat. First yeah. time in the history of that guide, in 43 years or whatever the hell it was. We lost a hat lost during a the hat. transition of Greeno to, yeah. to Paul. And we got it back. Just and got, got it back. Restaurant of the Year and all these other accolades. But um, what was the menu before, Kylie? What do you mean, like what, what were we serving at Seobo before? Just before to, Paul? Yeah, because it's a good contrast. I guess it was very European in a lot of aspects. It still had like that touch of Japanese, Asian cuisine. But again, it was like very nondescript. There was no real, I don't think like there was ever any easy way to describe the food. I don't think Seo has ever been a very easy restaurant to categorize. Like we were always like, oh, it's modern Australian. Modern Australian like just sort of ticks many boxes but doesn't tick any box and has this really broad idea of what you can cook. But like there was never really any specific cuisine. But, you know, with Ben and his food, like there was a lot of European influence, very French, very English. Um, and that changed after. It took a while for Ben to find his voice. Yeah, the first thing it was more co-ish. Yeah. And then because change I, into European. I think like he kind of as well did the same thing where it's like, we need to cook like this. And then we dropped the pork bun. You know, it was like we put the pork bun on the menu straight off. We never really off. had the pork bun. Did we have the pork yeah, bun? Yeah, it was on the, the, on the tasting oh my God, menu. You're right. I forgot about that. And then we dropped the pork bun from the tasting menu and just had it in the bar. It was like, you know, it just took us so long. It was like releasing these chains like one at a time, one at a time, being like, oh, actually, maybe I can have a little bit more independence. And and there's so much resistance around that too, because then people are like, oh, no, but you have to have the pork bun. And then the bosom, which was on at the end, which, you know, was this big piece of pork shoulder that we used to serve right at the end instead of petty four. So we did that at the beginning. It's just like almost like a joke. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> right? And then it was just like, and then that became like a thing. And then even drop that was like, oh, God, we just don't want to have this. God, you know, it's like the whole signature dish kind of thing where you just, it's almost like you feel obliged to cook for the masses or like to give people what they want and like to be able to break away from that and be like, well, actually, I'm sure I can create something new that that people are going to want as well, you know. I mean, like from that and also just from the way the restaurant ran, everything, the details, how the restaurant felt was completely different. And I think that like Paul was so jarring for me. Because we were not having fun. It was in a dark place. 
Yeah, it was just really like it was about precision. It was about being perfect, I think, you know. I'm precise. Awkward silence. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, you know, like it was, it just felt different. I mean, I remember Monica Brown coming into the restaurant after Paul came in, right? So it was probably a year into you being there. Monica Brown was uh, Heston Blumenthal's um, right hand. Right hand almost, a lot of different things. But uh, she has great opinions on food. Yeah, and she came in, right? And she was like, oh, I didn't think I'd like this, but it's actually really good. And then she's like kind of looking around the restaurant. And she goes to me, so when did you do the renovations? I was like, what do you mean? She's like, it just looks like, did you do something? It looks really open. Like it feels like lighter in here. And I was like, I swear to God, we haven't really changed anything in the restaurant. It's just how it feels. It's the way that the mood is, it's the cooking, it's us being free, I think, like just the whole, I don't know, like, I mean, and even just getting used to Paul, that was. Like if we were a band, it was like punk and then it turned into like emo goth. And now, <laughs> now literally we're just playing like island music. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like island jazz. Yeah, island jazz. Island jazz. Or reggaeton dance hall music. Yeah, I'd say it's more like island jazz. Give me, give me your, your air horn. <laughs> <laughs> So as you can see, these guys have such a good relationship. And that's what I think emanates. That has always been, to me, one of the hallmarks I've wanted for our restaurants, where it's not necessarily the decor. People forget it's the guests and the people working there that are oftentimes the decorations, the, yeah. the vibe. And it started from the two of you guys. And this is my third time back. And I used to come here a bunch. We'll talk about that another day, but... Had your first menu, and I could see you like fucking struggling to figure out how to break free. And I can't remember the conversations, but like I was like, it's heading in the right direction. I came back maybe like a year later, and things were more free, but not quite. There was much more of the show and tell, more transparent cooking, more towards the method of cooking without a net. And I think the previous thing, we got sort of lost in cooking in a closed kitchen, even though we're in an open kitchen. Mm. So we weren't playing to our strengths. And that second go-around, and it's been a couple years since I've been back, I was like, shit, you actually took a lot of the advice and the criticism, both from around and internally and whatever I suggested, which I, I don't recall, but I remember just being like, dude, you're a really good cook. Just show it. And that's when you started to pick your protein a little bit and then make the mofongo and Things that you thought were probably not a bad idea, but things you couldn't do. And I was like, this is awesome. And then everyone started to talk about it. And the Noma team that was here, they were like, dude, this is where we want to eat. And I was telling you, I was like, Paul, you got something good going on. I have not been back. Last night, we ate. And it's at like way more developed. And it was one of the best meals I've had in ages. And people come back to America that I know, they eat here. They say the same fucking thing. It's fun. I had a great meal in a casino. That's weird. <laughs> but it's one of not a great meal. It's like, oh, that was one of the most memorable meals I've ever had. And I don't even understand what I was eating. And the service is great. You guys have a great thing going on. But you're making food from the Caribbean. It's something that, like, when we decided to have you come down here, I knew it was, like, canning the kitchen. We have, like, really nice multini ranges that don't necessarily work that well. But the flow's pretty good, even though I designed it poorly. Um, <laughs> But can you talk about, Paul, what it was like transitioning from Mod Pesh? Because we sort of had the same conversations when you were at Mod Pesh. Yeah, I think, with all due respect, the biggest part of the transition is that you and I separated. Because Mod Pesh was a completely different beast. And the pressures from outside and inside and around were so much different. And I didn't really know how to handle them. You know? Like, I would have loved to be free, but I never felt like I could be free. Because you're in a space that is, like literally when everyone comes into that space, they want a specific thing. Like they have their ideas of what Momofuku is supposed to be. And you're a few blocks away from Noodle Bar, a few blocks away from Sambar, because it's all interconnected and everybody like expects it to be that. You had that on one hand, and then you have me looking 
not necessarily looking up to you, but just not trying to disappoint you. There was a lot of that going on in New York. And in Sydney, the distance and also the realization of self and self-worth made me realize that I didn't need to owe you anything. Because I truly felt like I owed you a lot because like, like I left Puerto Rico in a very, very bad place and came to New York and started working with you and Tin. And I really like felt like, for fuck's sake, man, this dude's doing me a huge solid and I got to repay that debt. Like I felt indebted to you. Whether you knew it or not, that's how I felt. So I constantly was like thinking like, I was thinking how to make you happy rather than how to make me happy. And I remember we had like this big blow in the office one day where I was telling you similar things. You were like, fuck you. Don't try and make me happy. You know? And it was like, well, fuck's sake, man. But I care. You know, I care so much. That's why. But what happened after that argument is couple happened. Yes. And, and that happened. So, I mean, a lot of this was I had an idea. This is all glorious that it happened. It's all you and it's all you. But Ma Pesh, we closed because of a lot of reasons, but we wanted to move it to the Time Warner Center. But one of the things that happened with Ma Pesh as it changed so much over the years was that if you don't know because you haven't had Paul's food, Paul's food makes you happy. Full stop. Doesn't matter what kind of food it is because you can make anything. It makes you fucking happy. And it's a gift you have. You know how to make delicious food that makes people happy in a variety of ways. And you could cook French food if you wanted. People still feel the same way. Classical French. I know because I've had it Mm. from you. So... We gave you the opportunity to cobble together that like makeshift tasting menu couple. And that's when I saw, I was like, oh, Paul wants to do food he grew up eating. The seeds of Sayoba Today happened sort of there, which then I learned happened when your final project at CIA. Yeah, which is very, very true. And I think couple was a beginning, but not a full expression because I still had a big ass restaurant to run. <laughs> But moving to Australia and having Kylie have my back made me feel free. And freedom for me is a lot because Kylie and I talk about this a lot. And I'm like, there's certain typecast cooks on the planet. There are people who can execute quite well, others' visions, and there are others that have their own vision. And I feel... I could definitely execute people's things, but I'm happiest executing my own. Just like you. Like, you're happiest executing your own vision. Like, you wouldn't want X dude come and be like, hey, DC, I really want you to make me French dips tomorrow all day. You might love a French dip, and you might change it into something else, but you can't be dictated. You know, you won't allow anyone to dictate what you do. And I feel for myself, like, being free has been the best because I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fail Kylie. I don't want to fail my daughter. I just don't want to fucking fail in general. And I use that freedom to fuel moving forward. It's like when I tr- when when people try to like micromanage us, we're like, just fuck off, man. Give us room and we'll give you what you want. But if you huddle over us, like it ain't going to work. Yeah, it's like planting seeds. We'll work it out. You just got to help sow those seeds and then give us time and we'll make it happen. I work like that. Paul will be like, hey, Kylie, I think that we should do this. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm just telling you now because I know you need like uh, six year. weeks <laughs> to a year to sit with it and then you'll make it happen. I mean, we both like that, you know. Mm. We need someone to help us like, bring those bones together, but then we'll fill it out. Like, yeah. And we need that freedom to do that. And I think that that Sayobo's definitely given us that, which has been amazing. Yeah, it has been. And we formed a bond that's pretty incredible. Like she's like my little sister, you know, and I fight to death for her. And that's God's honest truth. And I am like a Carmichael because yeah, I've been adopted. God damn, officially adopted by the Carmichael. You went to Barbados. Yeah. yeah been adopted. I did. Well, I mean, I was like... I'm invested in this and hell, I get to go to Barbados. Like I'm, I'm going to go. So my husband and I went and spent four days with Paul's family. And it was honestly one of the most special experiences because 
Like, let's face it, we're in Sydney and we're so far away from the Caribbean. And I think that, like, learning more about Caribbean culture as well, it's a pretty intense history. And it's something that I didn't really understand. What did you learn about Caribbean history that makes it so intense? Well, I guess, a like, lot of people the whole, probably don't know. I guess the whole part of it being a region born from slavery, basically, that's something that is not really. I mean, Australia has its own issues with its Indigenous people, but slavery is not something that I've ever really discussed. You know, we never talked about it at school. It's not really anything that anyone wants to talk about, and it's not an issue. You know, it never has been. And then really understanding, like, you know, you think about Caribbean food and you're so removed from it, you think, oh, Hawaiian shirts, you know. <laughs> Coconuts. Coconuts. Grass skirts. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's just so cliche. But what else do you know about that? And then going to spend time with Paul's family, like, they have a lot of the same values as my family. I think that that's why Paul and I get along so well is because the same things are important to us. We care about the same things. And, and we're just hardcore blue-collar yeah. workaholics. But like then we, also spending time with your family as well, it made me understand you. I was just like, ah, oh, I get them so much. Like his mom and dad and brother Pete, like I felt right at home. Like I didn't feel like I was a stranger in somebody else's house. His mom cooked for us. Like as soon as we got to the airport, they had like signs at the airport. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yes. They made little signs. They don't have signs for me. Yeah. They sometimes Well, they didn't know up. what I looked like. <laughs> I guess you sent them like this weird photo of me on your phone, but they like mom and dad probably don't know what, I didn't yeah. know what I looked like back then. So they had to have a sign. They took us back to their house and like straight away, mom was like, she's mom now, by the way. She was like, what do you want to eat? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like whatever. She was like, tell me, what do you want to eat? And I'm like, oh, what do you got? (laughs) And she like from that moment on just cooked for us like the whole four days. And it was amazing. And I walked away from there and like I still message her all the time. She probably messages me. Oh, she, she said Paul. she, my brother texted me this morning. She lost her phone and she said to tell you that she lost her phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Really? Yeah, she's uh, like, I lost her phone, tell Kylie. <laughs> I'm like, where's mom? Why is she, she messaged me? Yeah, so, you know, I think that that was like really important in like understanding as well that it's like to be able to represent a culture, you have to understand it and respect it and be able to you know, cultural appropriation is a real thing. So in Australia, where I'm an Asian chick running a restaurant in Sydney that has no connection to the Caribbean, how do I respectfully represent a culture that is so rich and that people have no idea about and is so easy to draw conclusions about when you have no idea about it? So that was like a really important part for me to A, understand Paul and B, understand like, what I'm getting myself into and what it is I'm representing. So, yeah. And also to make sure it wasn't blowing smoke up everybody's ass. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a real thing. This, is, this isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> they're called bakes, but they're fried. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And I mean, like, from that, it's been awesome because of, the deep history, it also has so much purpose and has meaning for me. At the end of the day, like what we do is just, you know, cook and serve food. But to be able to pay respects to something that's really important gives my work meaning. And I think that that is really important. And I'm grateful for that because I think that I've had so many conversations in the restaurant with people. And it's so easy, like, you know, I think like this conversation about how European food has is very much respected. And then all the other sort of cultures are secondary to that, right? So you'll happily pay $40 for a pasta, but noodles shouldn't ever cost more than 20 bucks or whatever. So we're having this conversation and there's been a lot of conversations with guests too, because everyone's like, oh, everyone tries to like relate something in our menu to something that they know. Right, so a rice dish with curry or mampostiao, mm. which is a rice dish from Puerto Rico. People are like, oh, it's like fried rice, or oh, it's, it's like, like risotto, risotto, or you know. And it's like Paul's been really adamant about being like, no, it's not. It's this. 
And I had this conversation with one of the guests and she was like, oh, yeah, so, you know, what's the food? I mean, people still don't know it's from the Caribbean. We don't want to shove it down their throats. I think it's still supposed to be an experience and we're not trying to teach people a lesson. It's just representing who we are. So, again, forgive me if I, I'm sounding dumb, but I'm trying to take the position of someone that doesn't know anything about what you're doing. I'm going to be like, so wait, how are you guys making the food from the Caribbean in Sydney, Australia, in the back-ass end of a casino mall? Well. <laughs> great question. Great question. <laughs> how is that even possible? Great question, chef. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Australia has many, many climates. I tend to look at this massive continent as one place and not like little pockets of places. So when I got here and I went through the markets and I saw cassava and I, I was like, where's all this from? And they're like, oh, this is from north of New South Wales or upper Queensland. And it was like, oh shit, it's from here. So I'm like, here. And then it was like, okay, this is going to work because I need to represent Momofuku and the ethos of Momofuku, like using things that are around us. But I also want to be free. And that's how it, it happened. So like everything in the restaurant, 90, I would say 95% of the things in the restaurant that we use are from Australia in some way. You know what's funny? People might say it's completely different. I've never thought of it as the Momofuku ethos, but I guess it's always like, just do what you're not supposed to do almost. <laughs> <laughs> but also when we opened up, we used everything that was from Australia. Yeah. And so to me, it's like, not the same restaurant, but the same restaurant. Mm. So like, that's really hard. And because I didn't want to do a disservice to you or the brand and to myself as well. When there's amazing marins and crabs here, why am I going to get snow crab from the Bering Sea. You know what I mean? Like, none of that made sense to me. And then the fact that the ingredients were good and they were from here. And, and tropical. And they were tropical. And, and also, they weren't being used. Like, I got, yeah. to, I got to the point where purveyors were trying to, like, overcharge me for things once we started getting going. And I call up and be like, listen, man, I get that we're in the casino and I get that you want to fuck us, but you not charge me that for plantains. It just ain't happening. You know, like... Because no one was buying you no, plantains no. before, bitch. <laughs> you know, not on that scale. So no, no, I'm not paying 65 bucks a kilo for them. You could go fuck yourself. So it all worked out. From my perspective, when you were doing the food at Capo, which was your, almost your final thesis from CIA part two, like the second version... One of the things that prevented it from being really extraordinary, it was good, was the ingredients. Mm. And you were bitching about that. You're like, I can't get this fucking this and this and this. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think it was the ingredients and the lack of privacy. Because it was like right in the room. You know, people are constantly walking by, going to the bathroom. So it wasn't like a great look. But the funny thing is, I kid you not, some of our regulars today at Sayobo have been to Kapo. And they can see the thread, right? And no, because they're like, they're like, man, we had a good time with Kapo, and now we're glad to we be this restaurant's here. We really love this restaurant. Like Kurt. Kurt. Oh, he went to Kapo. Kurt was at Kapo. He still oh. freaking talks about it. Can I ask, what are your thoughts? Because I'm so happy for you guys, number one. And when you guys were getting all the accolades, it was genuinely maybe the happiest I've ever experienced anything in the culinary world, particularly Momofuku, because... I had so little to do with it. And it gave me so much joy to see you guys take something to a whole nother level on your own terms. And that was like a couple years ago. And to see you guys refine your voice, part of me, and I've heard this from some of the people in America, particularly in New York, they're like, well, just I see it on their face. Like, we have this guy, Paul, <laughs> in New York. And I'm like, fuck you guys. It gets me so angry. Does it ever bother you? Not that it bother you, but... I've always felt that you're one of the best cooks, bar none, anywhere. People have always said that when you were at the tasting room cooking with Jason, with Jason Neroni, and uh, Colin. Everyone would say, damn, Paul can fucking throw down at WD, so on and so forth. Everyone knew. Yet, you never got the credit that I always thought you deserved. Because I never cared. I always wanted to just do the best job that I could for whoever I was with. 
you know? I was extremely happy to be a facilitator. And the big change came working with Wiley because Wiley actually wanted to know what was in my brain. And I was like, what? You want my input? And that was a big change for me in my life. And that's why when I got to Mapesh, I was like, Tin, what do you want? Like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, I want you to take care of Larder. And I was like, all right. And then it ended up at one point, Larder was like three quarters in the menu. It's just because it kept pushing, you know? It was just like, it was like, here, you want this? Is this good? Let's work on it. Boom, boom, boom. Keep working, keep working, keep working. But that's just all, yeah. Do you remember the first dish you ever put on WD-50? I do. I don't. There's the root vegetable lasagna thing. The pave of stuff, the fried parsnips. Oh, the parsnip thing with uh, the quinoa. Yeah, I remember that. That was really good. That was the first time when I tasted something because like, I knew it wasn't WD's because he doesn't fucking like vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the thing is, when, I, when it was there, we had, we had this vegetable. It was a vegetable lasagna as yeah. the veg course, right? Or the veg substitute. And Wiley's super open and he was like, but no one wanted to fuck with the vegetable thing. And I was like, I'm going to change this. And he was like, yeah, man, have at it. And I just want to make something super tasty that was in line with WD. And like, I was thinking, like, if I were Wiley and loved vegetables, what would I make? And you've, you have this extraordinary capacity for empathy. You just, it is the missing ingredient to me for the chefs I admire. It's not technique, which you have plenty of. You can think outside yourself how someone might want it. And that's really what makes you, to me, an extraordinary chef. He's so intuitive. Yeah. Very intuitive. And this dish, if you, if you tasted it, was fucking amazing. I was like, where's the bacon in here? Where's the fucking bacon? And I remember telling you, did you put bacon in here? He's like, no, dude. It's our vegetable cord. <laughs> <laughs> You're so stupid, baby. <laughs> and it, it was the first time when I was like, because like, you had heard rumors. I never work with you. Paul was an early supporter of Momofuku back in the day, first ones. And mm. I tasted this dish and I was like, shit, this is like, I don't even understand how good this is. And it just backed up the rumor mill, right? And the rumor I didn't mill even know there were rumors. The rumors like, this guy's a really good fucking cook. Simple as that. There's always rumors. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then I was leaving New York and Dave was like, Will you come back and work for Momofuku? I was like, never. <laughs> I was like, I am coming back. I'm settling down in Puerto Rico. I'm going to just be there. I'm getting the dog. Yeah. <laughs> which exactly I did. You- which I did. I got a dog. I got a freaking nice apartment. Yep. Then fuck that all up. And I was <laughs> like, <laughs> let's be real. I, I got to take ownership of that. And uh, and then. You were peace out for sure. You're like, fuck like, this. I kid you not. This is the story of PR. I was driving home from work one night, and that Jay-Z, no, it wasn't Jay-Z, that Alicia Keys song, Jay-Z, Alicia Keys song, New York, that had just come out, and I heard it on the radio for the first time, and I was like, I gotta go back. (laughs) Like, I I was like, I gotta go back. Like, I can't do this anymore. And then, literally, a few days after, Dave called. I was at my job, and he called. He's like, hey, man. Opening up this thing with tin, you want? I was like, "Yep, could be there in a couple of weeks." <laughs> and then the shit store of my life began because, like, I didn't even know it was coming, but it came. <laughs> <laughs> in tough, some tough fucking times. Very tough, very very tough times. But there are times that, like I always say, I would never change. I mean, I would change how I, I treated some people, for sure. But as far as the grind and as far as the tears and the, the honesty and the letting go of things, I wouldn't change that. Because I wouldn't be who I am now. I wouldn't be as good as a dad as I can be. Love you, boo. I would not be as good as a, a support parent, I guess, for Mel. Yeah, like those things matter to me. And if I had never let go of all the anger and the hate, the self-hate, I don't think I'd be doing this. And I, I tell people a lot 
Like, I would never forget when I moved to New York, 20 years old, working at Aquavit. I looked at Marcus, and I was like, man, chef. Because they were doing some sick shit in, like, 1998 or whatever, man. And it was like, you know, I had no... Like, I had been cooking in Barbados, but never say anything like that. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way I'm ever going to do this. And I looked at Marcus. I was like, how do you do this? And I forgot what he told me. <laughs> I really do. But I do know what I tell people now from a position of if somebody's like looking up to me, I say, worry about yourself, learn yourself, know yourself, and things will come. When you nix everything else and try and figure out who you are, what you are bad at, the things in your life that you are shitty at. Like if you're shitty at relationships, if you're shitty at like showing emotion, if you're shitty at self-evaluating or if you make a ton of excuses, sort all that shit out. And when you could get to that point, you could cook with the freedom that makes you feel good, makes you want to get up and go do it. And that's what I tell people. Because skills, one thing, but you have to have not, something to say. Yeah, you gotta have something to say. You gotta want to say it, and not want, and not want to say it through the lens of somebody else. Because I think one of the biggest things for me was coming to the realization that I am not you, I am not Renee, I am not Alan Ducasse, and I will never be because you are you, Renee's Renee, and Ducasse is Ducasse, and everybody's got their own point of view their own way of thinking, and they have their own sort of self-worth. And if I try to mimic that, it's inauthentic. And I need to figure myself out and be authentic. And that is where I'm at now. Nice. True story. Hashtag true story. Hashtag. From the guy that doesn't have Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) And I am... uh, extraordinarily grateful that we've been able to like work together, provide you the opportunity, especially to you, Kylie. Like, fuck, man. <laughs> went through like a lot. You went through hell and back and then hell again. Mm. Yes. It's a lot of drama for you. It's and, been a roller coaster at Sayo, bro. Like, yeah, should have quit a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, no I tried to. <laughs> I tried to at one point. Yeah, what happened? Oh, uh, I you handed got it. Daved. Uh, yeah, I did. You came and I was like, Oh, I don't know. You got DC'd. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I never told you, but I, I did quit at one point. I was like, look, I'm done. It was after Paul got here and he was like the restaurant was running really well. And oh, I, I remember. Was, yeah, and I was like, you know what? I think I've done what I needed to do here. And I was like, all right, I'm out. Like I just can't do this anymore. I've got nothing left. You were just putting it all in to get to the level where you can leave with your head held high. Yeah. But then, like, I just realized, I don't know, it's like so much of that place is me too. You know, I put everything in. Like, losing that third hat was probably one of the hardest things that I've had to deal with there because it took, I felt really responsible. But, Kylie. I did. I told you, like, (laughs) are you fucking kidding me? Fuck, and I knew it was going to happen too. And I was like. We knew, we expected it. Yeah. And she was a mess. I was a mess. And it's like, they, they got me. They got me. And it's like, I don't know what's going on. You don't even like, want to have it. Yeah, I was like, I don't know what this is. It was so funny. <laughs> I knew it was happening. I knew it was coming. And I got really wasted at the awards. And then I was a mess. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst. Because you know what? Then after that, we sat down. And I was like, I was just like really upset. I knew it was going to happen. I knew like it was, a lot of it was out of our control. I knew. I'd prepared myself for it. But it was I was so destroyed. I was just like, we could have done more. We could have done more, like, whatever. And then, like, Paul and I were just like, this is fucked. Like, why are we so worried about this? Like, I know that it's important, but at the same time, like, we just have to do us. Like, that's Mm. all we can do. You know, and like from that moment, like, we had, we sat down. Yeah. We like wrote down, like, we actually like rewrote 
the mission of the restaurant, our values were like, what's important to us? What do we care about? Like we care about the people in here. It has to be about us. Yeah, it can't just, just be about Paul. Insular. It can't just be about, you know, Irish. It's got to be about all of us. Like we're all in this together. So, you know, it's not just about one person. Like I knew, I knew it was like ridiculous for me to feel responsible. Even now, like upsets me, of course. But like I had to tell myself, like I can't just, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about us. We've got to like band together and just fuck everyone else. We've got yeah. to do us. And like we did that. We did that. We like made that decision. We wrote down everything that we cared about and that was important that nobody else, like it didn't matter what someone wrote about. Like if we liked the food that we were serving, if we cared about it, if we didn't, then we were accountable to each other. Like it was up to us to be like pull each other up. That was the thing. It was like, we shouldn't need a reviewer to tell us if this is shit. We should be able to tell each other if it's shit, A, eh? mm. you know, and True. like, and be honest with each other. If we're not proud of what we're serving, then that's your first problem. So if we can't be honest with each other and be like, lay it all out on the table, then we're not taking care of each other. To be brutally honest with each other. Yeah. Well, that was it. It was just like, this is our restaurant. Like, mm. it's our opportunity to make it what we want. So if it's not what we want, then that's our fault. You think that's yes. a problem when you see other restaurants that are struggling to find their voice? They're finding a hard time to lay it all out on the line, to be honest? Because the funny thing to me is, by the time you guys came to the realization that, fuck it, we're going to cook for us, and we don't give a shit about the awards, you win all the fucking awards. Yeah. <laughs> We were like, when we got the third hat back, we were kind of like really surprised. Because again, like we kind of got really used to the idea of like two hats is great actually because mm. there's it's, no expectation. That's what I love. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was dog. like a really nice spot to be in. It was like, you know, like it's great because we get you get that recognition and people like recognize that, yeah, it's like, it's not a shit restaurant, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, like people aren't walking in there trying to justify why you've got three hats or whatever. Like, mm. oh, or comparing you to other three Or comparing hats. you because, like, you know, yeah, if you're a three-hat restaurant, there's five of you or three of you, and all of a sudden you're… It's the you're, closest thing to the Michelin system that if you're wondering what the fucking hats are, it's very similar to the Michelin guy. Yeah, exactly. And then they, people come in and they're like, oh, I can't believe like this is a three-hat restaurant and it's only got one toilet and you got to walk through the kitchen. And oh. it's playing reggae and there's a black dude that's a chef. Yeah. Well, and True. this is what I always say. It's like that was the same from the beginning. It's a whole other podcast about <laughs> Australia and skin color. We'll, we'll get there another day. But yeah. So, I mean, like that was one of the best things that ever happened. And then from there, I was just like, okay, all right. And then I was like, oh, my work is done. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, actually, it's not. But then, you know, I guess, like Paul said, we've just become so close and, like, Paul's my family now. And I got to tell you what, I had no shit without Kylie. <laughs> I'd much rather I retire. I retire and go pick corn. Yeah, but I mean, like, <laughs> and also we're so similar, but we complement each other in, you know, in what we do. Mm. Because you're extremely creative and I'm not like that in, well, I'm a facilitator. Yeah, you're. I'm too scattered to do what you do. Yeah, so it, like it the works. other day, Dan was like, "Paul, do you want to be a businessman?" I I feel like people think you're an artist. And I was like, you know what? He is. I am. <laughs> He's an artist. I am. And just, I threw that out there because I I knew if he said businessman, he was lying through his fucking yeah, teeth. I was, I was like, nah, I'm I'm. He's not. I'm I'm the Basquiat. But I love that. <laughs> Because Paul gives me something to believe in, and that's what I need. I need purpose. And once I have purpose, then I can go with that, you know? If you were just like, Kylie, choose whatever you want to do, I'd be lost. And I'd be like, uh, but, you know, team me with someone with Paul that has, like, a really great vision and has something to care about. I'm like, you know what? I'm all in. I'm 100% on board, and I would do anything to make sure that that comes to life. You know, because I believe in it too. And I think a big part for the restaurant was the fact that we wanted everybody that worked there to like working there, to have a good time, to feel good about coming to work and not feel like it was a burden, you know? We got to get going, but um, I want people to know, like, 
the only thing Momofuku or I did for you guys to get here is literally get the fuck out of your way. You guys did this on your own. And people should not think anything other than like, we gave you guys a restaurant space. Kylie, you helped recreate it. And Paul's vision finally came to fruition through a lot of fucking heartache. And I said this, and I keep on saying this, whether you realize it or not, what you guys have been able to do over the three plus years at Seobo, as it started new under Paul and your leadership, it planted the seeds for how we should do it at all the Momofugus. It really did. Because we were coming out of some dark shit. Oh, boy. Everyone was coming out of some dark real, shit. Real dark. Real dark. <laughs> it's a Game of Thrones shit, man. Real dark shit. And, and, and I saw the move that you guys were trying to do, right? Which was transparency, like the definition of hospitality. Not this bullshit of like fake. It was like, you're coming into our home, just like you described, going into the Carmichael household in, the bar, in Barbados. It's like, I'm here for you, right? And so much of our definition now is like, however we get there, it doesn't fucking matter, but we want you to feel like you're taking a piece of us. Mm. And the meal that I had last night was like that. You know what I mean? Like, so I thank you from the bottom of my heart, really. And I'm so happy. Watching what you guys do makes me happy. And you know that I fucking am never happy about work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, Dave, I want to thank you publicly. Because like at the end of the day, man, we've worked together for what, now eight, nine years? I've known you. I keep telling people, I'm like, I've known DC before it was DC. (laughs) You didn't even have a restaurant. You were just starting. And uh, yeah, I want to say thanks for like believing Thanks for being a dick, you know, and thanks for caring. And don't ever stitch me up because I'll find you. <laughs> yeah, this is the best. Like I said, I don't know. It's it's given me purpose. And I guess I feel really grateful to both of you for always like pushing me forward because that's also one of the things, like particularly for FOH, like I feel more that we're back of house, you know, like we're in the background for a lot of it. But like you have both always really championed me and that's helped me to kind of, I guess, encourage other people to like consider front of house as a serious career because that's like that's one of the biggest hard, like that's not one of the hardest things in, I mean, every industry has its struggles, but there are people who want to be cooks. There are not a lot of people who want to be servers. There are not a lot of people who want to be restaurant managers. Mm. And we need those people because they're the people that like put that extra love and care on the top. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and Kylie, I think you're, that- you're fucking best in class. Just are. And I know, you know how you fuck up these guys? You give them compliments. Yeah, we don't really like that very much. <laughs> Kylie's fucking freaking out. All right, we're, we're going to end it on that now because we got to get out of here. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Well, like I said, that was a different conversation interview I've had in the past with Momofuku team. Paul and Kylie are drizzle veterans. I mean, they've seen it all. Their insights are priceless, not just because they have this wealth of institutional knowledge, which they do, but because they've internalized these philosophies that I think are important to me, Momofuku. And honestly, like, they have character traits that I just admire in general. And they take something and they instill themselves in it. And they've taught me a lot, really. What they've done at Seobo has been so transformational and inspirational. It really did plant the seed for change in Momofuku. They're always trying to evolve. They're always trying to get better. And I've come to value that more than anything, just adaptability and the grit and determination to make it better for not just themselves, for those that work there. And I think it's fitting to sort of add this one one major little tidbit is that last week we announced that Marguerite Mariscal is going to be the CEO of Momofuku Holdings. She's been with us eight plus years, ever since she was an intern from college. And she's sort of steadily risen through the ranks from being an intern to working PR to doing social media to doing marketing to doing branding to becoming chief of staff to running just about every kind of division within our company. And I couldn't be prouder. She is 
ready for this role and um, she's going to do this better than I could. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to obviously do a little bit more media. I'm trying to find balance in my life, but I really want to spend time with uh, the next generation of talent in our companies and develop new ideas. But more specifically, I want to find time to spend with my family, something that I've never really done in my life. And obviously with addition in our family, I want to try to be present. And that's the God honest truth. I'm just trying to make some changes in my life for the betterment of just not myself or those that are around me. Because I've learned that what's good for me may not be good for the actual company. And having Marguerite and having people like Kylie and Paul have total ownership of decision-making rights, that's amazing that they have the ability to affect change and they don't have to ask me, hey, what do you think, Dave? I'm happy to talk to him. I'm there. And the funny thing is, is I think this should free me up to spend more time with all these great individuals in our restaurants. Anyway, I'll shut the fuck up now about that. Want to get to some questions from Ask Dave at Major Domo Media. Let's see here. Again, we are taking emails to Ask Dave at Major Domo Media. Let me get to the first question from TC Nicholas. For the person who really wants to learn more about food and cooking well, but isn't in the industry and isn't going to go to culinary school, how would you suggest we learn how to cook really well? Well, TC, thank you for the question. How to cook really well if you don't want to be a pro and uh, you're not going to go to cooking school. I think that if you want to cook at home and that's just a, a recreational thing and learning how to feed, first and foremost, just cook and get out of your comfort zone. Listen, there's so much information. There's YouTube. You can literally follow things step by step. You'd be surprised at how many professionals, including myself, use the internet to learn how to cook. But first and foremost, just take it seriously. But not too seriously, right? But like, have fun with it. Make something delicious. And this is a lot of time to get better at. And Maybe on your weekends, you, you get a job or you extern for a restaurant and you just peel onions. You wash dishes. I mean, I'm serious. Like to truly get better at this, you should learn how to do all the things that are not cooking oriented. Learning how to reorganize your kitchen, your cabinets, to be meticulous in your labeling and cleaning of, of everything. Like organization is everything. And if you really want to learn how to be a better cook, Take care of that first and foremost. Secondly, just learn everything. Learn every kind of recipe possible. Go to the classic French stuff. Then go to classic Asian stuff or just cook whatever you think is good to you. But to get better at it, it's just repetition. So, you know, it's not a sexy answer and I'm sorry, but if you want to get better at cooking, it's just something you got to do over and over and over again. I truly believe the best cooks are not the hare, they are the tortoise, and you need to figure out how much time you want to dedicate to it, especially if you have another job. If this is just your hobby, I would then focus on what are some elements that you could just like own, right? Like maybe it's just grilling. Maybe you just want to be good at ice cream making and all the other stuff, you can come second. But I, I really do believe that if you want to learn how to be a good home cook and just take it a little bit more seriously, start to go down rabbit holes in food and just own it. Like I remember just starting to cook in college. I was working as a bar back in a bar and I just see the, the owner, Marty, making hamburgers and stuff like that. Like just watching and observing and then learning how to cook from the Food Network, whether it was Emeril Lagasse or the great chefs from the West. I was just trying to immerse myself, total immersion in food, Sometimes I wasn't even making it, just looking at it. And all the while, while I was doing this, I was still working and I had jobs. So listen, I don't know if I've made any sense in talking about it, but ultimately, dude, if you want to get better at cooking, you just got to fucking do it. Don't think about it in your head. Um, second question from Micah Peterson. What are the five cookbooks a home chef needs on their shelf? Love the show. Can't wait for more. Thanks, man. Thank you for the, the question, Micah. Uh, let me think here. Let me think here. Best cookbooks off the top of my head. I will go with 
The Last Course by Claudia Fleming. I do not think that's in print anymore. You probably have to get it online. Claudia Fleming was the first pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern, and she worked with Tom Colicchio. Uh, and she is arguably one of the most important chefs, not just pastry chefs America's ever had, because how she thought about food, the ingredients she used, the techniques she created— had never been done for before, and I just feel like her desserts are so influential that whether you realize it or not, if you go to a restaurant around the country, you might be eating one of her desserts that uses her technique or is a ripoff, or the person that's making it as a pastry chef might have worked for someone that worked for Claudia or worked for her directly. So I think that's a really good book just to get some clever insights. And she's just one of the best. The other book I would think of is Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking. Classic, iconoclastic book that's not really a cookbook, but it's really a book about the science of cooking. And if you understand why something works, if you understand literally the science of it, you'll see that cooking really is I don't want to say it is a science, but like it makes you better. You learn why certain things are better techniques, right? Or you disprove cultural myths. And I think that for the home cook, you're battling so much of culinary cultural truths, which I think are wrong. I think one of the most famous examples that McGee talked about when he would promote the book was um, the fact that like searing a steak actually doesn't seal in the juices. It still is an important book, and I think you should have it on reference. And I I want to say LaRousse, but I'm not. So the third book, which would be a good reference, uh, would be the French Laundry Cookbook that came out in the late 90s. It still is one of, if not the best book for a young professional cook to own. It's still so fucking good. I, I just looked at it the other day. A lot of the messages, the philosophies of Chef Keller are still relevant today, and the recipes are really timeless classics. But there's no book, I think, that gives you a better insight of how a professional book and rest— and and it's almost like the best uh, mission statement for the French Laundry. And yeah, you could say whatever you want about it today, but it was a landmark, groundbreaking book and restaurant, and um, I think that— if you're a young cook or if you're a home cook, that's probably one of the the only serious restaurant books you should own and study from. From the knife cuts to the importance of family meal to the precision of basically everything. It gives you a benchmark of just how excellence, how far excellence can go. A fourth book off the top of my head isn't really a book. It's a novel. It's a nonfiction novel called The Perfectionist. The Life and Death of Hot Cuisine by Rudolf. I always get his name mixed up, like with Noam Chomsky. It's uh, Rudolf Chelminsky. And um, if you want to know more about Western gastronomy and how basically we eat today, and it all stems back to the Trois brothers and the rise of Nouveau Cuisine in France, and it really does chart the life and death of Bernard Oiseau, who was the chef at Le Côte d'Or in France, and he wound up taking his life under, uh, well, I'll let you read the book, but while it is a story about Bernard Oiseau, it really does give you an insight to the beautiful history of French gastronomy and how we eat today. And I always look at French cuisine as sort of the the basic accounting systems that we use in food. So if you understand French food and why it's so good and why we use it today, it should make you a better cook in theory. But even if you don't, it's a great novel. And I don't see how it won't make you a better home cook. And, you know, a book that I recommend, and I don't know, quite frankly, if it's still classic or, I mean, it's a classic book, But I don't know if there's other books because I I don't really buy too many home cookbooks anymore. It would be The Essentials of Italian Cooking by Marcella Hazen. Hazen, I can't ever pronounce her name right. You know, and that was probably one of the first Italian cookbooks that I bought. It does give you a really good insight of all the the day-to-day sort of food that Italians eat and things that are really applicable and not easy to make, but 
it's a good thing to have at home if you want to learn how to cook Italian food. The recipes are accurate, and I think she's got great step-by-step process. And the only thing is about it is there's not a lot of pictures. And if you are a picture person, then it's not going to be the perfect book for you. But it's a real classic, and you'll understand if you use it or you're a fan of it, you'll know what I'm talking about. So those would be my five. The Last Course by Claudia Fleming on Food and Cooking by Harold McGee, The Perfectionist, The French Laundry Cookbook, and um, Essentials of Italian Cooking. So thank you again for the question to ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com. I have talked far too much again on this podcast. Stay tuned later this week for the second installment of our anniversary special month of May for this podcast, The Dave Chang Show. And uh, give us five stars, however you listen to this, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Uh, Appreciate it. Peace. Thanks. Thanks.